You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. A couple of bad habits that I picked up this last year, if I could be open and honest and just, we're confessing church, you know. Uh, candy bars, guys. Um, I think way back in the 90s, I was like denied access to candy bars too much. That's what I'm going to blame. And so now, as a middle-aged, middle-class person at Publix, it's very difficult for me to not walk out every single line with a Snickers bar. So Kyra says she knows when my stress is up because there'll be more Reese's wrappers around. She'll know when I'm happy because there's Snickers bars. There's a whole code, really, for what I'm, what I'm eating. But candy bars, I've got to say goodbye. That's one thing, for sure, as far as bad habits. These are all, these are all bad ones. Um, second one, the sleep <laughs> has been bad. And I can blame no one. I mean, my kids are not infants. They sleep fine. I am just, I guess I'm an infant because I subscribe to uh, the Warriors, the uh, Golden State Warriors uh, League Pass, which lets me watch West Coast games on East Coast time, which means they start at 10 and they get over at 1. And gosh, my alarm clock doesn't go off later, right? So it's still going to be at six, no matter if I want it to or not. So the sleep thing, I got to get a handle of that. And uh, let's see, what else? Oh, um, I, if there was like a food chart of my nutrition, like if you could see a pyramid of like what I'm made of, it'd be like, you know, like 10% antelope apparently, right? And 90% coffee. Like, I basically, you're watching, you are what you eat. I'm apparently a cup of coffee. That's all that I do is drink coffee, and so the diet is not good, guys. So anyways, these are a couple of, couple of things um, that I would, share, I would share openly with you, with my church family, as far as bad habits from 21. Um, but, you know, we talk a big game, you know, like we're spontaneous people. You know, it's like, I'm just, I'm just out here, just floating around, and I am just live on a whim, you know, like, and... Um, we claim like we're spontaneous, but we are creatures of habit. You know, the psychologists will tell us like basically if 5% or more of your life gets changed this year, you're going to freak out. You're not like, it's beyond, like five, six, 5% stress, 6 to 7% if your life changed, like you had to go the wrong way to work, like you would have a panic attack. Like we talk like we're creatures of spontaneity, but we're creatures of habit. You only open five, I don't need to know you. You open five apps, that's it. You only have five apps. You have five friends. You're an extrovert, you might have six, but you don't have seven. Where are you going? Where are, you, are you going? When you, I, I'm a traveler. You go to Publix, right? You don't, you don't go anywhere, right? You, you, you and I, we talk like we're big game, like we're spontaneous, like we're serendipitous, like we are whimsical. We are very habitual. We're creatures of habit. That's, that's what the science, science will show us. And that runs in, in friction with us as red-blooded Americans because as red-blooded Americans, we have, this, we have this skepticism for ritual. You notice that? We have a suspicion for doing the same things over and over again because at least in our minds, ritual means ruts in religion. It means something cold, something empty. It means going through the motions. And for everything that we want as life, liberty, pursuit, happiness, and freedom, we're running from that because the last thing I want to live in is a rut. So I'm changing my hair, I'm changing my shoes, I'm changing the background of my phone, whatever that 5% is, I want to use the, that as much as I possibly can because by God, I am not a creature of habit. I am free. I do what I want. 
you know? But can I make a critical submission to you today as you kind of get the year started? Is that religion and ruts don't live in motions, they live in motives. Religion does not actually live in the motions that we go through, because you could be a prideful, arrogant, legalistic, spontaneous person. Spontaneously, you could be prideful. And at the same time, don't we all know that it is in our repeated motions, our repeated rhythms, the things we don't just do once, but the things we do over and over again, where our character and relationships are formed. It's not in our motions, it's in our motives where religion or relationship gets formed. So consider, for example, three people. You've got a soldier who does the same thing every day. He gets up and he makes his bed and he cleans his boots, he brushes his teeth and he makes sure his weapon's set up. He's religiously getting his act together every morning, like a soldier, right? Then next to him, consider, or her, an athlete. Is an athlete religious? They go to the free throw line and they spin the ball the same exact number of times, every time. Some of them talk to each other. And they pat their chest, and they point to somebody, and they shoot the ball. And they do it every single time the same exact way. Are they religious? And most importantly, you might consider this when it comes to where does religion actually live, motions or motives, consider a husband. The husband gets up and makes coffee and breakfast for his wife every day, drives to work, hopefully, on time, every single day, devotedly, and hopefully goes to the same bed every night. And no one is calling a husband a legalist, are they? Are you going to call somebody who is devoted to their bride, somebody who perpetually and predictably gets up every day and puts on his shoes to provide for his wife, are you calling him a legalist or a lover? And so that's my critical submission to you today as you consider the habits that you have, the things that you do over and over again, sometimes going through the motions, sometimes not, is that religion, if there's one thing they drilled into us as Protestant Christians, is that we are not about religion, we are about relationship. But make no mistake, both religion and relationship can be formed by motives, or by, by motions and by, and by motives. And ultimately speaking, it is not in motions, but it is in our motives that our religion or relationships are formed. And so the question for 2022, for you and for me, is not whether or not we will do the same things over and over again. We will. We will be doing tomorrow the same five apps and the same five people and the same five stores and the same, same bedtimes and the same coffee and the same amount of half and half and the same Starbucks routine. We're going to be doing the same things over and over again. The question is not, are we going to be doing the same things over and over again? The question is, are we going to do the same things over again for our loves or for our lusts? Will we be devoted this year to the spirit or to the flesh? Because we are creatures of habit. But it is in the habitual, predictable things that we will devote ourselves, either consciously or subconsciously, either to our lusts or to our loves. And by the end of this year, may we, and I would hope for you and for your family and for my family and for us and for us as a church, we would find ourselves more devoted to the spirit this year than to our flesh, more in love with the spirit this year than our flesh. And so something seeps into our red-blooded Americanness that somebody tells us because we follow an extraordinary God, we must become extraordinary people. But that could not be further from the truth. That in the inherited revivalism that there has to be this excitement and somebody told you at 18 years old that to be a Christian, you need to go do something exciting. And if you're not doing something exciting today, then you must not be Christian because an 
And an extraordinary God can only be followed by an extraordinary person. But, but remember the ethos of the original church. If you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it's not the extraordinariness of the people, it's the extraordinariness of the God and the ordinariness of the people that makes God extraordinary. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says that now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this was their perception of what they saw. They perceived that they were unlearned, ordinary, ignorant men. The perception of the public towards the church and what made the church the church was not that extraordinary people were doing extraordinary things, it was that the extraordinary God was dwelling in the midst of ordinary, common, everyday people. They marveled at that. They took note concerning that they had been with an extraordinary Jesus. And so I think what can happen in an hour like this in, in the American church, as red-blooded American people, is that we think that by following an extraordinary God, that the, the proof of that will be that we live extraordinary lives, but quite the opposite. We are not extraordinary lives following an extraordinary God. We have an extraordinary God that is dwelling in the middle of ordinary people in ordinary days. And if we don't understand that fact, if we don't trust in the identity and the pattern ethos of what the heritage of the church actually is, we will neglect our devotions to exchange them for strategy. And in our impatience and insecurity of not seeing the signs and wonders that we want, we will make them happen. And we'll become experts, not devoted. And we will create lights and sound and worship sets that create feelings and emotions that look like they're signs and wonders, but they're lacking the content of it. We'll create strategies that try and blog and write and speak about cultural unity and diversity, but at the meantime, we don't have anyone that doesn't look like us at our table because we will exchange devotion for strategy. We will rack our minds around what it means to be a disciple, and in every single year, it'll be groups, it'll be systems, it'll be Sunday school, it'll be curriculum, it'll be YouTube videos, and we'll, we'll exchange one strategy for the next, all while forsaking our original namesake, which is devotion to the Spirit of God, devotion to the Word of God. And there are no shortcuts to this thing. And so this is the passage that I want us to look at and meditate on. It's really three simple devotions that are all found in Acts 2.42, but they unpack the rest of the passage for us and really all of the invitation of the Spirit towards the church in every era, not just the early church. Read with me in Acts 2.42. This is the key passage, the key verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to Scripture and to fellowship, the ordinary getting together, meeting together, breaking bread in each other's homes, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. If you want to know who the church is and what the church does, you can look no further than Acts 2.42. They are people with the Spirit in their midst devoting themselves to the Scripture and to bread and to prayer. And it's nothing more fancy or sophisticated or expedited or easy than that. It is simply that simple and yet that thorough and diligent and deliberate as Acts 2.42. They devote themselves to Scripture and to fellowship and to prayer. But then as you read on, I've actually color-coded it today to see that Acts 2.42 exists kind of like a song and a dance. In the same way as you remember in Genesis chapter 1, there's a poetic sing-songy rhythm of the Genesis creation. Let there be, and there was, and it was good, and let there be, and it was good, and let there be, and let there was good. That Acts 2, Luke is writing a new song that, like the first creation, has a call and response. And Acts 2.42 
has the same rhythm of call and response, this time not between creator and creation, but between the spirit and the church, a dance of devotion that is creating a new creation right in the middle of the early church. In the same way as God creator spoke his breath and created things into the atmosphere in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, so it is in Acts chapter two that the spirit is still creating things, but a new kind of creation in the people of God with the spirit of God to recreate a new thing in the earth. The same way as he created the light and the stars and the sky, he's creating the bride of Christ, the church in our midst. And so there's this back and forth in the color code that I have. So Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves, but then verse 43, the spirit comes and fills the church with many awe and signs and wonders of the apostle. There's this sway, this dance. Back to the church, verse 44, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. Unity didn't just fall upon them through osmosis, they devoted themselves to it. They played their part in the dance. But you'll see that you almost in the next verse can't tell the difference between where the church ends and where the spirit begins. There's this harmony of creation between the spirit and the church and the church and the spirit and the spirit and the church and the church and the spirit. And so all believers were together and they had everything in common. I mean, is that mundane or is that a miracle? I can't tell the difference. You have everything in common in a room of 150 people or a couple of thousand people by the time Peter preaches. You have 3,000 people having everything in common. It is extraordinary, but ordinary at the same time. Verse 45, they sold their property and possessions to anyone that had a need, this generosity of what's mine is yours. I'm giving everything I have. I'm devoting myself like a husband would be to a bride. I'm giving that away. Was that the church's job or God's job? You almost can't tell the difference. You almost can't see the distinction between the two because there's such a self-given sharedness between the two. And so then it goes back, and every day they continued. They didn't just sit around waiting for God to do everything. They continued to devote themselves. They met together. They had a job description. They were, they were diligent and devoted to prayer. They weren't just showing up because they needed something. They weren't just showing up because they wanted to go get something. No, they showed up because that's who they were. Where else would they be but be in the temple with prayer? And they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together in sincere hearts and praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. And so I mean, my mom would always try and take me to dance lessons, you know? When I was a kid, she'd take me to swing dancing, and that's why I am the way that I am, guys. I just grew up with a psychologist mom, and there was a waltz, and it has a two-three beat, you know? One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and there's a dance that almost matches in the waltz, like the beginning of this passage. There's this three-beat dance Word, bread, prayer, word, bread, prayer, word, bread, prayer, word, bread, prayer, word, bread, prayer. Yes, sometimes we go to conferences. Yes, sometimes there's moments where you would stand up and speak for social justice. Yes, there's times of, of great abundance and blessing, and then there's times of persecution and hardship. There's things that change. There's highs and lows. There's times to move fast and times to move slow and times to study and times to sing. Yes, those things will change in the rhythm, but there is a beat in the rhythm, and it never changes and it's word, bread, prayer, word, bread, prayer, word, bread, prayer. There's never a time that a Christian should ever say, yeah, I'm not really in a season of prayer right now. It's just not really what I'm called. Yes, yes, you are. I'm, I, the scripture is something I read when I was a kid. I know the scripture now, so I'm, I'm not really devoted to it anymore. No, yes, you are. You live with a devoted spirit, and we own nothing against the spirit and own nothing really amongst each other because we're devoted to scripture and we're devoted to prayer in every season. There's never a season that I'm not really, I'm just kind of on my own right now. I'm just like in my own thing. I need to go figure out life. I'm not really called to be devoted to breaking of bread. No, you are. As much as the Bible holds up the regard for prayer in scripture 
as much as you would need the Bible to follow Jesus, you need one another. There's no such thing as a season of isolation for a Christian. And so for on out, as far as I know you, and we'll do pastoral meetings and we'll talk about next steps and needs and so forth, but one thing that will never not be a next step that will never be a waste of time is word and bread and prayer. Word and bread and prayer. And out of these things come all these other miracles that we can never produce. You and I can't produce healing. You and I can't produce miracles. You and I cannot produce in and of ourselves salvation as much as you would want. And you know this because the family members in your life to produce a salvation cannot happen the same way as Sarah can't produce a baby in her womb. So we cannot produce life in a person. Only the Spirit can do that. So we leave to God what's God's that we would be devoted to, to our dance with him of word and bread and prayer when we feel like when we don't, of word and bread and prayer. So for a few short moments, I just want to take each one of those, each one of those words that are on the screen there, the devotion to scripture, the apostles' teaching, to the gospel, not to pop culture or even to, to preachers and pastors, but the actual living word of God. I want to call you to that devotion because you will be devoted to something this year it will be your lusts or your loves. And one of the things that is identifying about who you are because the Spirit is so generously and perpetually devoted to you, so you are generously and devoted and perpetually devoted to Him and His Word. And so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what it looks like to be devoted to the breaking of bread, not just to Panera. I mean, that's pretty great too. You get some food out of that thing. But devoted to the breaking of bread and to not forsake the gathering. I mean, I'm not saying every single Sunday morning. I'm just saying... As a perpetual rhythm, are you at the table? Do you get to the table? And as you want to drift and as your flesh drifts away from the table, do you devote yourself there? And to prayer, is that becoming more and more of your first and your last and your only? Prayer, what does it mean to be devoted to prayer? I'll read a couple of passages onwards into the book of Acts. Maybe you've never heard a sermon on this one, Acts 27 through 12. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. I see y'all. Some of y'all fall asleep on Sunday mornings on me. It's okay. I love you. Hopefully, I'm giving you some rest, you know, from the week. I'm just saying, you think I preached long at 45 minutes? This guy's talking to midnight. Be thankful for what you have, you know? He kept on talking till midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Good grief. What if Veronica just fell out of the window over there in a car hit her, you know? Good grief. And here's the most crazy thing in this whole passage, verse 10. So Paul goes down throws himself on the young man, puts his arms around him, and says, don't be alarmed. He said, he's alive. Resurrected the kid. Okay? So let's just, let's just slow down for a second. Now you read the Bible, and you're like, man, this is, you don't, you take for granted how weird it is. This man talked for, what was he preaching on? Was it Leviticus? Like, did, my first sermon ever on a Sunday morning was to preach through the book of Leviticus. Like, I had to preach the whole book. Leviticus. He preached through Leviticus, for so long, the kid fell asleep and fell out of a window. You know how traumatic that is if you just see somebody fall out of a three-story window? Anyways, apparently they didn't have enough you know, regard for it to spend any more verses on it. Paul goes down there, resurrects the kid. Now listen to this, verse 11. Let's just, let's just let this sink in. He talked for so long, the kid fall, fell, fell out of the window. He died, 
resurrected him, and then verse 11 says, he went up, after he resurrected him, he went upstairs and broke bread again and ate. Like, what's most concerning to him before he puts that on Twitter is he's going to get back to doing church. He's back to devotion. He's already back preaching. He didn't learn his lesson. He kept on preaching. He kept on talking about the word. He kept on being devoted to bread. He kept on being devoted to prayer. He went upstairs again and broke the bread and ate, talking until daylight. What? All y'all would be asleep. It would be like a lock-in for 40-year-olds in here. The people took the young man home and were greatly comforted. I don't know what word you'd use to describe the internet story. I'm not sure I would put comfort in my Instagram. I'd be like alarmed or something. Man, they were devoted to Scripture. You see that? Like the kid fell out of the window, and they had a resurrection in their church service, and they still thought reading the Bible was more important than that. That's crazy. You go read some of these passages, you think they'd come up with like, you know the chosen, they got all upset because they said that Jesus was like sermon prepping. You read these passages, these sermons that Jesus preaches, these sermons Paul preaches, dude, they are dripping in Old Testament literature. They're dripping with scripture. It's not just people just talking about their opinions. Like, they are drenched and soaked and saturated in the scripture. Seth says something. Here's what it says. A lot of people as a pastor, you know, they tell me, like, I don't read the Bible. And I, you know, say, why? And, you know, here's three reasons. Let me tell you three reasons why we don't read the Bible. Number one, it's confusing. The one page, you know, the Proverbs says, you know, like, don't resist a fool. And then the next one says, like, teach a fool. So it's like, which one are we doing? You know what I mean? Are we loving the neighbor or killing the Philistines? Like, I get it. There's tensions, right? Right? Okay. Two, it's boring. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that. Like, some of it is very long and it takes a while. Like, it's definitely more of a symphony than a, you know... Uh, Netflix special, and uh, and also um, it is uh, it's very repetitive. It's ten key themes, and you're kind of hearing the same thing. So, what do I need to hear these things? And here's my answer. Here's here's what I would say to you if you're asking that question. Even now, if you've never thought of those things, the reason why the Bible could seem like it's contradictory, why it's boring, and why it's somewhat repetitive, is because the Bible is not here to produce answers for you, but to produce wisdom in you. See, the thing about wisdom is it's, it's not just about moving fast all the time or slow all the time. It's about knowing when to move fast and when to move slow. It's not about spending or saving all the time. It's about when to spend and when to save. See, wisdom, wisdom is much more difficult to convey and transist, right, and, tra- and, and to get across the table than answers. If you're looking for answers in the Bible, you will not find them. You can find a few answers. For the most part, though, the Lord is living and active, as Timothy says, and is there to build you and I up in the wisdom of Jesus. So you guys might have heard this, that uh, Facebook, um, it's switching it up. Facebook is no longer Facebook. Facebook is now meta. Meta. You know, it's like that announcement came out, and it's like, geez, like, if that is not the most pretentious thing I've ever heard. You know, like, meta, what, what is even, how do you come up with this? Meta. And so meta is the new name, and under that, it's like Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and all that kind of stuff. Mark Zuckerberg got on there and was like, he's in the middle of a literal digital beach and he's like talking to some penguin or something and he's like, this is the future of the world. And you're like, Willy Wonka is going on right now. But here's what I can tell you. As silly as all that sounds, in five years or less, I promise you, you will not learn to look at that sign over there with anything less than respect and a sense of value. And here's why. Because as we stand, there are Billions of dollars being spent to inform your opinion of that thing on the right. When iPad came out, everyone thought it was a feminine hygiene project. 
That's never going to sell. An iPad, what in the world we call thing an iPad for? No one thinks that anymore. You know why? Because there's billions of dollars trying to teach you what that word means. So here's what companies know about persuading you and influencing me. Is that to persuade you and influence me, they don't need to change how you think, they need to change what you think. And all they need is about 50 notifications that pop up on your phone of the friend that's having the new baby and a new life, and there's a rebranding concept that will happen seven times a day, over and over again. Christmases and Hanukkah and New Year's and Chinese New Year's and all these other things are going to be used to spend and employ billions and billions of dollars to teach you what that word means, right? Because transformation is maybe 10% revelation, but it's 90% meditation. It's not how you think, it's what you're thinking about. And so what the scripture says we're to do with the word is not learn it or memorize it or understand it in some sophisticated way. It's to meditate on it because it's not how we're thinking. It's what we're thinking that changes what we do. So if you look at my Instagram feed, this is what shows up on my Instagram feed. The top three words that I see when I go through Instagram and I do that as much as scripture or maybe more. Here's what people want you to be talking about. Toxic relationships. I bet you you're going to scroll through your feed and they're going to be talking about toxic relationships. That boss is a toxic relationship. That friend is toxic. you got to manage your toxic relationships, okay? Second thing that they're going to talk about is mental health, which is a big, big concept. And we're not here to say that I don't care about mental health, that God doesn't care about mental health. I'm just saying that these are the words that appear in your Instagram feed that are not appearing in your scripture. Burnout. I'm burnt out. How am I going to manage my life so I cannot be burned out? How can I plan and program everything out so I have enough energy? I don't want to run out of energy, so I don't want to be burnt out. These are words that God absolutely cares about, has things to say, but these are not the answers to the wisdom that he's trying to impart. These are the words that you're going to find in your scripture. Idol. And it's not how you're thinking about it, it's what you're thinking about. And the scripture wants to tell you that more important than the other three words that I just put up there, if we go to the next slide, toxic burnout or whatever, is how are idols doing in your life? And if you are thinking about toxic versus thinking about idol, you are walking two separate paths. And it's not how you think about either of those words, it's what you're thinking about. What gets your attention? The power of persuasion. Holiness. Here's what you're not meditating on when you're thinking about how to manage your stress levels. You're not thinking about what it means to be holy as he is holy. To look up at your sky with your back on the ground, with your face at the stars to realize he is God and I am not. And God can be big that I might be small and then I might find some real rest around here. Because the two different trees with two different words on their mind are headed two different directions. And he's saying we're not to be meditating on the words of our, of our human brothers and sisters, the echoes of this world and the false prophets of this world, but on the scripture is the only way that we're going to find the way, the truth, and the life. And faith, what does faith mean? It would take us, it would take us 100 years and we would never understand the fullness, the depth, and the brevity of what faith means. It's not something I can just put up on a tweet. You've got to walk that out with your kids and your money and your house in big and important ways like that. Like wisdom is not an answer. It's a person. It's it's. It's something that gets meditated through, through the years. So this is the way that Psalm 1 talks about wisdom that explains what Facebook knows, right? Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates on the law day and night. It's not a light bulb, it's a tree. It's not a revelation that I have this aha moment and everything changes now for the rest of my life because I get it now. It's about a simple thing, like love your neighbor. He is gentle and lowly. He is holy, and I'm to be holy as he is holy. These things in our mind, this is what is producing 
Transformation, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Paul says. This is what it is. It's not revelation so much as meditation. Over and over and over again. And so the three different postures of standing and sitting and, and walking, you know somebody as well as I that you would drift for three weeks or four weeks or six months and you'll wake up and go, oh, how, did I, how did I stand and walk and sit all the way over here where the mockers sit? Scripture waits for us in, in the day and in the morning and the evening that we might meditate on what is true. That we wouldn't have to take six months. No, that we wouldn't walk that way. We wouldn't stand over there. We wouldn't, we wouldn't sit with the company of mockers because we are meditated on the law, because we are devoted to the Scripture. We are devoted to the man that I would turn my app on in the middle of the night and fall asleep like Eutychus. <laughs> He'd resurrect me in the morning, maybe. That I'd be meditating on his law. Because life is contradictory, and life is boring, and life is sometimes redundant. And so the Bible is not answering to our religious ideologies. It's answering to life, and it's trying to speak in the middle of right where we are because wisdom is not something, it's someone. And it's not somewhere it's trying to take you, but someone it's making you, someone it's making you to be. And there's no shortcuts to this thing. It's simply a devotion to the word day and night. Second thing I want to talk about today is devotion to the bread. Devotion to bread. I'll read a couple of passages today and see if you can spot, spot the pattern. Acts 20, verse 20 how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in the public and from house to house. Acts 5.42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the, as the Messiah. Acts 12.12, 12, when, when it had dawned on them, he went to the house of Mary and the mother of John, who also was called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. The, the disciples, as much as they cared about prayer and scripture, they cared about bread. They cared about one another, and they were often in the middle of the scene that would open up in the episode in the Bible, found in homes, doing average, everyday, ordinary thing, not negating, not negating the gathering of the saints and the breaking of bread. How, how could a, a, a creation that's drenched in the dysfunction of Babel, you know, the confusion of all the languages, come together under Pentecost to be hearing the gospel through one language, through the, the ministry of tongues, and come together people that were slave and barbarian and free and black and white, how could they all come together in one place? The Bible presents a very simple yet very accountable, accessible rhythm to our lives. The breaking of bread. How, how are African-American brothers and sisters and white brothers and sisters, how are baby boomers and millennials and Gen Z, and how are prophets, evangelists, and teachers all going to come together in unity by the power of the Holy Spirit? It's a very complicated, sophisticated thing with a very simple answer, eating together. This is the proposition of the Bible. This is what the scripture is saying. Do not neglect in your sermons and in your blogs and your great books and your strategies and your whiteboards to, to neglect the, the core devotion of what the church is. It's a church that is together by the breaking of bread. I was having a dinner uh, the other night with the Peavies and Mackenzie and Taylor uh, have helped the Lord, helped me from the Lord understand what faith means in a way that almost any other family hasn't shown me before. And they have just been through the gauntlet and back again these last years. Uh, and um, it's been a beautiful way that I feel like the Lord has helped me meditate even on that word faith uh, this year. Came home the other day. It was chilly night that night. We had made chili and there's macaroni. And we've been reading the devotions every day through the story of Joseph. And so it's a long story. Chapter 42, he gets the dream, and it's a long couple of verses. So Rose decided to go get the little Joseph coloring book and give it to Ollie so he could have something to color that we could read. And we're not trying to come up with the next C.D. Jake sermon. We're just reading the passage. Let it speak. 
And there were some good questions like, why does the cupbearer get to go free? And why does the baker get put on a pole? <laughs> it was Alex's question. That was a great question, you know. I know Taylor started to talk about dreams. And he asked the table, like, what do you think about dreams? And what kind of dreams have come up in your life? And I was so tired that day. And I just didn't want to force my kids to read the Bible. Like, I didn't want to be devoted that night. I wanted to be watching Steph Curry. But we opened the scripture because that's who we are. That's what we're about. We're the tree. And so we opened the scripture and we read it and the spirit did what the spirit did. And, and the prayer that Taylor prayed at the end of it caught my attention. I asked Taylor to pray and Taylor prayed and he said, God, there's just so much unity at this table. Unity isn't just people in a room or saying the same thing or singing the same thing. It's, like, it's a gift that the Holy Spirit gives the church as it gathers together. And there's just no shortcut around it. It's table by table, house by house. And I just, I thought to myself, I think, I said, there, right now, I thought to my, literally, I said, there are some people that are so rich and have so much more than the people at this table that are out working so hard to get what we just got for free. People are working so hard for a little relief and peace and community and friendship, not knowing that it's just on the other side of a little devotion. On the other side of scripture and prayer, the daily abiding of prayer and scripture. And I'm just saying, I wondered how many, because you see, like all the kids and the, and the husbands and the wives, they're coming in, the scripture talks about like, we're defiled from a day. We've been, we've been criticized and we've been hurt and stressed out and bummed and we think we need to go on a vacation and we think we need to go make a million dollars and we think we need to go solve these problems and read these books and really what we need is just a meal and some prayer together. And it's just astounding to me, like when I'm in those moments, I realize how much I do to go get things that God wants to give me for free which is unity at my table. What else do I want except for unity? Like, am I really gonna work for 50 hours a week to go get a job to put food on the table so that everybody's sitting there on their phones all day? I just went out there, went to college, did the thing, did the American thing, went to, got the job, put the, put the bread on the table and don't even eat with the people that are there. What a tragedy. In the meantime, we're working and we're trying to get our right questions together and he's just saying, listen, open the word and pray and see what God might do. See what God might do, that you might make a complicated thing simple in my presence. All right, lastly, a devotion, a devotion to prayer. Let me read this last passage, and I'll try and close up quicker than my outline has. Uh, Acts chapter, um, uh, where am I at here? Acts chapter four, uh, in verse, starting in verse 23. It's just the average everyday you know, church day in the early church. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and Elders had said to them, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer, and they said, Sovereign Lord, they said, you, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and you spoke the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness and stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, they placed uh, the place where they were. The meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The church was praying because that's what they did. They were praying before they even got the bad news, or the good news, rather, that Peter was released, but they were praying for the bad news, and so they prayed in the good news and the bad news and the waiting between the good and the bad news. They prayed in their struggles, and they prayed in their strength. They just prayed. It's who they were. They were people of prayer. They weren't asking for an occasion. No, it was an identity. It's like what they were doing. They prayed. And if you notice, if you look at the passage, you could just add, you know, like, what's the best way to tell a middle schooler the definition of prayer? The best way to talk about prayer is say, 
Prayer is talking to Jesus. But beyond that, I think there's something more. Prayer isn't just talking to Jesus. The goal of prayer, there is a target. And the goal of prayer is not just to talk to Jesus, but to agree with him. It's our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. In the bread, in the forgiveness, in the temptation, in the deliverance, Lord, let, I, let me agree with you and not ask you to agree. This is what prayer is. It's an agreement together with the saints. It's praying for everything with everyone that you possibly can. Had a great missionary friend named Rich Hodge one time. He said, you know, the funny thing is about signs and wonders and miracles and charismatic stuff and Pentecostal stuff is a lot of it is about language. He said, you could go into a Presbyterian church. You just don't say you have a prophetic word. You just say, I sense this was happening. I just felt like I was supposed to do this. I was reading the word the other day and this popped out to me. Like, it's like, just pick the language and you can get the message across. It's the same thing with different language. And I think I really appreciate that because I've been in plenty of meetings and I've had the fortune of serving alongside lots of different brothers and sisters in many different streams and denomination. And I've actually found there's a lot more unity and commonality than you think. I mean, we're all people and it's all the spirit and we're all following Jesus together. You know, but as far as the, the signs and wonders thing, it has a lot to do with language. I remember one time we got in this huge debate about like, well, we're gonna lose track of our being spirit-filled and, and, and we're gonna, we need to be a spirit-filled church and we can't just be a word church. And I remember when I really sat home and thought about it, I go, you know what we were really debating about is how long the worship set is. This is what it came down to. A spirit church has flags and worships longer. And that's pretty much the only thing that I could conclude if I was a fly on the wall listening to that conversation, the thing that distinguishes a spirit church from a word church is we sing longer. Can I propose to you, though, that signs and wonders do not belong to any denomination or any language. They belong to the prayerful. They belong to those who have faith. And I think what's interesting about this passage is it doesn't take any flags or songs or whatever. Like the Spirit of God is going to rest on those who want him. That, that find people that are prayerful. And there's the thing about people that are full of faith that pray for stuff is they could do it in a Presbyterian church or a Catholic church or a charismatic church. They're going to pray because they believe that the best thing you could do down here is agree with Jesus. And anyone that agrees with Jesus is going to see their room shaken. And it could be for two minutes or 20 minutes. You don't need quantity of time. It's quality of the heart of the one that say, your will, not my will. And so in the meantime, I'm telling you, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in charismatic culture that actually doesn't see any signs and wonders. That's talking about signs and wonders without walking in them. And the conviction then for all denominations, Lord, let us get in front of you and not talk about ourselves and not try and go do what you're supposed to do. We are in a dance. And my job is prayer. I don't raise anybody from the dead. I don't heal anybody. And my sermons and my language can't produce that stuff. The only thing that can produce the signs and wonders is a church with the content of faith. And he'll wait on anybody as long as he needs to for that to take place. So faith is the universal Content, the devotion that is going to allow us to see the possible, the impossible made possible. And mark, mark my words, this is what the scripture is saying. Everything that we need is in the spirit, and it's just waiting on prayer. It's waiting on a people that would come and put prayer first as the agenda above the strategy, above the curriculum, above every other thing. What kind of song and brand and what church we subscribe to? No, prayer is prayer, man. He recognized it in a centurion. He recognized it in a woman at the well. He recognizes it wherever it is, and it pleases him. And it doesn't have to be marked with any kind of a denomination. And so let we, that we be devoted to prayer. That we pray for everything and pray for everyone and close meetings with prayer. And you'll be surprised And how much gets done, how productive of a meeting you'll have just by, just by closing it in prayer. Man, I just want to say one more thing. No one's, there it is. This guy. This guy. See, Keith gets it, man. He's in. Last passage, Acts 5. I warn you, this one... This one's a shaky one. 
Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard that that had happened. Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. That's an interesting youth group trip right there. That'll tell you what, we're not going to Six Flags this year. We're going to get this guy. Feel the air kind of leave the room there. And you see, like, it's not about devotion. It's about duty. It's about fear. That's what it's all about. I mean, God's just basically sending the good people to the good place and the bad people to the bad place, and you reap what you sow, and you sow what you reap. It's all about fear anyways. Tithe or die, right? Isn't that the message? Tithe or die. This passage here with Ananias' fire, it's not an extreme passage. You think, oh, maybe that was the last little hiccup from the Old Testament. That was the Old Testament God, forgetting that it was the New Testament. No, that was... That was post-Jesus. It's not an extreme story. It's an expedited story. It's a story that in a moment is showing the people of God what happens, what we often do in a lifetime, which is to live an undevoted life. It's to be a divided life. So the three analogies that we were talking about with the word and with prayer and with bread are organic analogies. The wise one is the tree. It's planted by the river. The passage I didn't get into, but the one at the bread, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 says that the body is not their own, but their body parts. They're body parts that work together. And don't say the other one that you don't need the eyeball and the ear and all that sort of thing, because body parts go together, and body parts alone don't work. And so the first thing that we talked about in Acts is the tree, and the second thing is the body, and this last one is, is the father. It's the prayer. It's the connection of children back to their parents. And so, so it's just a question, like, is he a fear monger? Like, is he creating duty and regimen, not just devotion and, and, and relationship? It's all in the, in the eyes of the beholder. Because it's not extreme and it's an expedited story. And, and here's really what the question underneath that. Is it cruel to tell a tree that if they cut themselves off from water, they're going to die? Is it cruel to tell a, a, a right foot that if you chop yourself off in a very short amount of time, you're going to die? Is that cruel? Is it cruel to tell a child that's two years old that decides he knows enough in the world to go pack his bag and put a handkerchief over a stick and leave home, that he's not going to do good by himself. Like, is it cruel or is it kind to tell a person that an undevoted life leads to death? Because this story is not extreme. It's expedited. It's showing what would happen to a lifetime of believers who continually do not devote themselves, but they divide themselves from the body of Christ and divide themselves from the Spirit. It is not cruel for the Scripture to come to us today and say, that is deadly behavior. It's not just unfocused behavior. It's just not divided behavior or, or divided behavior. No, it's deadly. And, and, so, and so the devotion, the devotion of a lover towards the spirit, devotion of the church towards the spirit is not just a matter of optional or preferential. No, it's essential and urgent. And the scripture is coming to us today in Ananias and Sabiah to put a holy kind of fear through the church to say, right? An undevoted life is not just divided. It's dead. It is dead you are not going to call a husband a legalist for going home to his wife every night. How many nights away from his, 
wife's bed can he go before that marriage dies? It is not cruel to tell a husband that his life is given to devotion, and so it is to the church. We are a church that is devoted to a devoted spirit, and the spirit is giving us all things and is devoted in all things to us, right? And that is not our nature. Like, the point of all scripture is not to say, hey, look at Ananias and Sapphira. The point is to say, look at Jesus. Look how unlike Jesus they are. Look how unlike the spirit of God. Look how unlike the church that they were. They, they didn't fit in. They were disconnected. Something wasn't right. They weren't filled with the spirit because the spirit of God wouldn't do that. A spirit of God comes into the church of God to be a devoted bride. And anything in our lives that's branding or telling us any different from this thing is lying. We are not our own. We belong to one another and we belong to the spirit of God. And if we are not dancing, right, with the spirit of God, we are dying. It's not an option. It's not a preference. It is an essential, urgent thing that we would be devoted to him. And so we will be devoted to something this year, our habits, our creature, or we are creatures of habit. We are doing the same things over and over again. 5% of it, maybe we have spontaneity and we roll the dice and pick restaurants, but for the most part, we decide those things. And those habits are forming one or the other, the lust or love, the spirit or the flesh. And so no one is calling a husband a legalist for devoting themselves to their family, right? And so it is that the church, like we are, we are called to be devoted, not from duty, not from discipline, but from devotion because we love something that would be devoted to him and devoted to the Spirit this year. So just a couple of pointers, some thoughts for the year as you continue on in your devotion to the Spirit. In deeper devotion in 2022, my prayer would be that we would, three things, read more slowly, eat with more people, and pray always. Again, three things that we would devote ourselves to before you get a six-pack. Go get a six-pack. That's great. Go read more children's, you know, how to raise my teens. That's fantastic. Like, we're gonna go and learn and not, you know, not throw Bible at things that we just need to go to school for. I'm not saying this is the only thing, but it's the first thing. Don't go get an exercise routine if we don't have this devotion to prayer, devotion to scripture. These things are life sources for us. And so three ideas. One, read slow. Two, eat with. Three, pray always. Consider reading the scripture and slowing down on each and every word. And I love to take one word like the word holy or the word sacrifice or the word atonement and ask myself, where have I seen this before and where will I see this again? Because the meaning is getting built up like a brand. Like Facebook pops up on your phone is building a story. And so it is with the scripture that you need to have access. Get your eyes access to words and those words will build in meanings over time. Secondly, that we would eat with, that we would set apart different times of the day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, what if the world changed because of lunches? What if the world could change? What if disciples were made? What if the gospel was spread because of lunches? Because we just decided to eat lunch with people. And to pray always, to open meetings with prayer and, and close meetings with prayer and just decide, even if it's awkward, to say, hey, can I pray for you? Not just pray for you, but pray with you. Pray always, pray early, pray often in struggles and in sorrow and all these types of things that would be a people of prayer. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.